Hi, this is Larry Wilson, and this is How to Talk to Humans. This is the podcast that shows you how to improve your communication skills. Are you looking to get a better job? Are you looking to find a relationship? Are you trying to do things in your life that have frustrated you and eluded you so far? I can show you so easily how to change that. Now, I can only do it with humans. If you're looking to deal with vampires or zombies, extraterrestrials, this is not the show for you. But if you're really looking to improve your communication skills, I can show you what I've learned from 40 years in show business working with the biggest celebrities and superstars in the world, and their secrets are unbelievable. What I'm going to be teaching you during the course of this podcast every week are tools that you can use to communicate toward success. Hi, this is Larry Wilson, and you're listening to How to Talk to Humans. I couldn't be more pleased that you've joined me once again. This ongoing exercise has been an extraordinary experience for me. I hope that anyone listening to this is getting as much from it as I am. Because if you are, you're having an extraordinary time. I want to talk this week about something um, that may be simmering in the back of people's minds, maybe just below the surface. I knew a girl once who I was very interested in, and I thought maybe there was some kind of uh, relationship developing there. And you know, as you do, when you start to develop close feelings with someone, you exchange personal stories of your histories and stuff. And she was making a, an example of something. She was trying to say about something that, uh, you know, sort of changed your perspective. She said, you know, it's like... Uh, it's like the first time you see your dad knock your mom out. And I remember quite clearly hearing a little click in my head saying, well, this isn't going to develop into anything. So I thought, no, I don't know what that's like. And I thought, this is a lovely girl, and she seemed very nice, uh, Everything about her was very positive. But all I knew was that someone who grew up experiencing that kind of violence and who considered it normal, ultimately, it wasn't going to be a good match with me. I never heard my father raise his voice to my mother, let alone striker, unimaginable, unimaginable. And in fact, I remember one time I was asking my father something about, something about violence or something. I, I honestly can't remember what the context was, but I remember him saying, well, the first one to resort to violence is the first person to run out of words. And I hadn't thought of that in so long. But, of course, he's right. 
because I, I, I'm not familiar. I, I feel like there's a famous quote, maybe, uh, I was going to say, maybe Isaac Asimov, uh, about that's similar. And maybe my father was unintentionally paraphrasing it. I want to say it's something like um, uh, violence is the last resort of the incompetent, or something along those lines. But I like the way my father put it better, because it really is true. I mean, those of you listening to this, of course, know that I have a great facility with language. But I've been doing it all my life. It's not something I just picked up. I've had a great deal of practice on it. But it's funny, like when this girl said this about seeing her father knock her mother, I've never been in a fight in my life. Well, I, well, it's not, uh, <laughs> I've, I've never really been in a fight, but I'll tell you another interesting <laughs> tale that involves communication. There was another girl, completely different time. Very, very nice girl. And uh, there was some sort of romance developing there. And I had come by her apartment after doing some show or something. And I invited her to come home with me. And she thought, oh, that was going to be a great idea. And then... uh. I knew that she had had a previous boyfriend, but she had broken up with him. And Anyway, the phone rang, and uh, she went and answered it, and I heard the name that she was speaking. Oh, it was the ex-boyfriend. And she just said, oh, yeah, you know, I can't really talk with you right now. I'm sorry. And she hung up, and uh, without me saying anything, she said, oh, that was so-and-so, uh, the ex-boyfriend. And I said, oh, well, you know, sort of felt like, well... Nothing to do with me. But then the phone rang again. And she picked it up. And she and it was the same guy, obviously. And she said, look, I'm sorry. I told you no, no. Now, she didn't say anything about me. And she didn't say she was with anybody. But she was talking to her for quite some time. I don't know, maybe five minutes. Maybe six, seven minutes. She got off the phone. I said, um you know, we should really leave. And she said, well, I just, I want to leave a note for my sister when she comes back. You know, they shared this apartment. I said, no, no, I mean, we should leave right away. And she said, what's the rush? I said, well, your ex-boyfriend is really upset that you're here with something. She said, I didn't say anything. I said, no, no, you didn't have to say anything. I said, he could tell. And she said, really? I said, oh, yeah. I said, and your ex-boyfriend's drunk. She said, yeah, how did you know that? I said, because I was listening to how you replied to him. You slowed your speech down, and you enunciated and articulated the words you were saying more precisely. Now, that won't do him any good because he's drunk but it was an unconscious reaction to him slurring his spirit and you know, being unclear. You may not even be a root. She said, no, I didn't realize I was doing that. I said, yeah. I said, believe me, it was instantly clear to me you're talking to someone who's drunk. I said, so 
a drunk guy who thinks somebody's making time with his gal, boy, there's an old-fashioned expression, right? I said, how far away does he live from here? She goes, I don't know, about 15 minutes. I said, well, let me see, drunk, he's going to be speeding. I said, he's going to be here pretty soon. And she said, oh, no, no. I said, trust me. I said, she said, no, no, he would. I said, well, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to leave, and I'd love to have you come with me. But either way, I'm leaving, (laughs) because he is coming here. And this guy, I'd met him a couple times. He was about half a foot taller than me and maybe 50 pounds heavier. And I thought, and he's drunk. He's not going to be happy about the whole situation. And I must have somehow expressed myself in a way that convinced her that I was really serious about this. She said, okay, okay, let me just uh, pack a, a couple. Of, I said, nope, nope, we got to go now. And she said, well, I just have to leave a note for my sister. I said, well, do it fast, because we're leaving now. And in my head, the clock was sort of running. I thought, boy, we're getting really close. So now, you know, it was late at night. Maybe it's 1 a.m., 2 a.m., something like that. She lived in an apartment complex, had a lot of apartments sort of in a big uh, U-shape around an open corridor with grass and stuff. And I said, it's time to go. So I got her out of there and locked her apartment. Oh, I guess her, oh, sorry, sorry. I got it wrong. I got it wrong. Her sister's boyfriend was there asleep in another bedroom, but the sister wasn't home. That's what it was. So she just said, she left this note so that she didn't want to wake up the sister's boyfriend. So so we're locked up her apartment and we're crossing this big expanse and suddenly looming up out of the darkness, this gigantic shape. And this guy just started swinging. Now, I can remember very clearly trying to communicate with this guy to no avail. And I thought, well, that's the reason you get drunk, so that you don't have to worry about communicating. That I was trying to say, now, just settle down. Because, of course, truthfully, nothing had happened yet. Of course, I had all kinds of grand intentions, but uh, nothing had happened yet. But didn't matter. He had managed to switch off his brain with alcohol and he was swinging and I was sort of trying to back up and move out of the way. And this girl was also trying to talk to him and he was, you know, of course not listening. And then one of these haymakers he was throwing uh, caught me square in the mouth. Now, this is why I laughed before because I was thinking, well, I've never been in a fight because I've never struck anyone, but I have been struck. I remember a couple things that were funny about it, is that when he hit me, I made a noise that as I made it, I thought, you're only making this noise because you've seen guys in movies who get hit. And I sort of went, ugh, like that. But I remember thinking as I was getting hit, there's no real reason to make this noise. It's not like... Like maybe if you got hit in the stomach, it would knock the air out of you and the air coming out would make a sound like, oh, or something. But getting hit in the mouth didn't seem like there's any reason. But um, 
But I also remember turning, I think I was already turning, so it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But when he hit me, this girl I was with started screaming. And then a most extraordinary thing took place. I looked up and saw a naked man flying through the air like Superman, but without a cape or a suit, completely naked, flying across this open expanse. Now, before anyone questions, I have never been a proponent of drugs or alcohol. I was stone-cold sober, sober as a judge, as they say. But I saw this naked man flying through the air, and he flew right at the guy who was trying to beat me up and knocked that guy over. And then there were more people screaming and lights were going on and people rushing out of apartments. It was all very exciting. I don't mean to suggest in any way that it was uh, fun or pleasurable, but it was very exciting. Now, at that time, some people sort of came and I guess had separated me and this other guy and they had piled on him or held him. Well, I realized what I thought was a naked man flying through there was actually the boyfriend who had been asleep in another bedroom. And he wasn't really naked. He was wearing white shorts and he was very tan. So I, in the moment, I had interpreted that as... But he launched himself. He heard this girl scream. He knew it was his girlfriend's younger sister. He heard her scream, came out of a dead sleep, came running across the thing and threw himself at this guy. And I just happened to look up when I saw him flying through the air. It was quite a dramatic uh, moment. And then all these other girls who were there were very concerned about me. And I, they said, are you okay? And I said, I don't know. I guess I am. I... I guess my lip was starting to swell up. Maybe it was cut, and I don't know if it was bleeding. It wasn't, but whatever it was, it wasn't serious. It wasn't bad. Everyone was all in a dither. But the reason I bring this story up here is because, truthfully, the first person to run out of words is the one who resorts to violence. And I I never know if my subjective observations are real. I never know if they're really subjective or objective. I can't tell. So I try to present the evidence as best I can to you. It seems like nowadays we see more examples of violence, sometimes just senseless violence, completely psychotic. You know, if someone's passions are aroused, they're angry about something, or someone challenges them, or they're defending them, well, that's maybe violence, but you can understand the origin. But sometimes you see, it seems more and more these days, just absolutely nonsensical behavior that results in violence. And I thought of something interesting in correlation to it, which is that you can frequently tell 
Sometimes you can predict when violence is coming by the way people use language. And I don't mean to suggest by that someone says, I'm going to punch you in the nose. Then that would be pretty clear that violence was coming. When people try to manipulate language, whether it's written or spoken, it frequently is an indicator of intention towards violence. It's not a guarantee, and it doesn't mean always or even often, but sometimes. And I noticed that a very interesting thing I'd observed, and and of course this is a result of the world of the internet. You're able to see things and hear things that you might ordinarily not be exposed to. But I realized that People who are inclined to be totalitarian, before they resort to violence, they want to control language, both written and verbal. They frequently will do this by changing the meaning of words. I'm I'm resisting the impulse to give you examples here only because I'm I'm very very adamantly apolitical on this show. I don't want someone to be distracted by something they interpret as my political leanings. I think that's a huge distraction. I want you to be able to learn to communicate more effectively. I want you to be able to communicate in a way that really makes people want to invest in you uh, emotionally, financially. I want them to feel like, oh, I want to know more about this person, or I want to spend more time with this person, or I want to be involved in business with this person. And I realize that totalitarians... It's the first uh, lever that they use. It's the wedge they put into the fracture point is to change language. And then, of course, um, having come to that realization myself, I realized, oh, I'm not the first one to think of this. There's a a writer named George Orwell who wrote a little book called 1984. And, of course, one of the things in that book is that the... uh, the government, which is frequently referred to as Big Brother. Big Brother is some sort of anonymous representative of the state. And uh, Big Brother says, uh, freedom is slavery. Well, this is like a perfect example of what I'm talking about here. That when people start to tell you that words mean the opposite of what you know them to mean, sometimes polite people or civilized people, well-behaved people, won't push back against that. I'm as guilty as anyone of that. I'm not ever looking to cause a fracas. I don't want to start trouble. But it's important for you to know that when someone urges you to believe that a word means the opposite of what you know it to mean, of what it says in Webster's Dictionary it means, 
those people frequently couch their speech or writing in a cloak of moral superiority. I'm saying this because I have to, or I'm writing this because I have to. What I'm telling you is of the utmost urgency. Now, and I'm not here to tell you, I don't know whether these people believe what they're saying, but I can guarantee you this, whether it is conscious or unconscious, when people try to force you to believe that words mean the opposite of what you know they mean, regardless of what their stated purpose may be, their real goal is power. Because communication is power. If I can get you to really believe that some words or phrases mean the opposite of what you know they mean, and further, if I could get you to use those words in the new way that I've told you they have to, that's enormous power over you. And I'm not here to espouse any political ideology. I have an old-fashioned idea because, you know, I, I come from the 60s, so I can only think of Ringo Starr saying, peace and love, peace and love. Well, I can't really find fault with what he's saying. I think peace and love maybe are pretty good things to go after. But I just want you to be aware that when people begin to urge you to use language in a way that you know is not true, I believe it's a precursor to violence. This has been Larry Wilson. I want to thank you for spending this time with me, and I hope you found this information useful. If you're looking for more, you can find it at thewilsonmethod.com. There's a ton of stuff there. In fact, if you want, you can even speak to me because I'm human. Send me an email at info at wilsonmethod.com because I read every single one. I hope that you'll join us next week in this continuing journey. And you'll be with me for the next episode of How to Talk to Humans. <laughs>